We have been moseying our way through the first chapters of Genesis, but I have every intention of finishing chapter 2 tonight. Uh, last week, I had planned to do all of chapter 2, or at least as much as we had left of it. Decided to split it up in two because I thought this stuff tonight was too important to do quickly. So we're going to be looking at the creation of Eve and the first marriage and all the issues that are related to that. But to catch you up, if you haven't been here, if you haven't been listening, we've seen God create the world, ex nihilo, out of nothing, with just a word from his mouth. Let there be and there was. But we saw that he created man in his own image. He, he molded him out of the dust in a special way. He didn't just speak it. He knelt down and he made that first man. And chapter 2, you remember, is giving us the ground level view of what happened in chapter 1. Chapter 1 gave us a big picture. Chapter 2 has given us a little more detail. And we saw in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And those verses that we just read, that or those words, male and female, he created them. That's what's going to be explained tonight, male and female. So let's read all of this. It's a short passage, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." All right. Well, verse 18, the beginning there, opens up with a statement that jumps right off the page if you've been paying attention. For the first time in the Bible, the Lord says that something is not good. Up to this point, the Lord has created it, and he's looked and said, it is good. The light was good. The land was good. But now he looks at this and he says, it is not good. And what's not good? The fact that Adam is alone. And God is going to fix that real quick. And we have this interesting little tidbit here where it talks about the Lord parading all of these animals past Adam and Adam giving them their names. He's exercising that authority and that dominion that we talked about a few weeks ago that the Lord told Adam to take dominion over the world. And I, I do want to say quickly because there are a lot of people that think they're smart when they say this. You don't think about Adam naming like every species and subspecies of animal walking right past him. He didn't have to name every bird. He could have just said, that's a bird. It would have been sufficient, right? He didn't have to give every breed of dog. Just dog would have been sufficient, you know, because people are like, well, there's so many millions of species. And if Adam named one per second, it would have taken him this. Okay, smarty pants. 
the Lord is going to show us later that the animals will reproduce according to their kinds. And as of right now, Adam is just naming the kinds, you could say. And I don't know how deep that went, but obviously it was enough that Adam could do it all. So cat, bird, fish, cow, you get the idea, right? But none of these things make a sufficient companion for Adam. So God sends him into a deep sleep, removes the flesh from his side. That Hebrew word there, by the way, it's the word tsela. And it does not necessarily mean rib. It just means side. But because the Bible says that the Lord took one of his tsela, that's why we assume that it was a rib, because it was not just one of the chunks of his flesh. It was one of his ribs. And he forms it into the first Woman And the Lord brings them together and oversees and institutes the very first marriage relationship. This is a foundational passage of scripture. And I know I'm a broken record in these early chapters of Genesis, but it's very true. Especially verse 24. It reveals to us how God has made us and how he has intended us to live. The rest of the Bible's instruction concerning sexual morality, marriage, gender, all of that. It all finds its root in these verses here. When Jesus in Matthew 19 was asked about divorce, he responded by saying, have you not read? And he referred to this passage right here as in saying, the answer to this should be obvious if you've read Genesis chapter 2. Other biblical authors will do the same thing. Paul will do this frequently. Moses will do this. And there's one commentator that I think put it very neatly. I'll just quote him here. It says, Jesus' appeal to the garden as the basis of his teaching on marriage and divorce indicates that the garden established a paradigm for marital behavior. A lot of folks that want to say, well, he's just saying what happened. He's not saying it has to be that way. But when Jesus himself refers back to this as the reason why we do things this way, he's making it very clear. This is very much intended to be the paradigm, the pattern that we are to follow. And you all know there's so much error and false teaching related to marriage and sex and gender and how are we supposed to navigate all of that well in very short by taking heed according to the word of god especially what he says right here the lord has shown us what is good it all comes back to this and this is just one more reason i'm not going to dive back into all this but it's another reason why we cannot compromise on the book of genesis because so much of it is built on what we see here. The Lord lays down his design for male and female. That's very basic. (laughs) That's very basic. And if we lose that, if we lose this foundation, you lose every frame of reference. Because if you say, I don't believe this passage, I'm just going to rely on the other ones. Well, you've got a problem because all the other ones refer back to this passage as why we believe this. So we're going to get into some of that tonight. We will spend some time addressing some of the errors and the problems, but I hope we can spend a little more time focusing on the positive aspects here. We, we can do that, you know, where we spend so much time knocking down all the wrong ideas, we never get time to come back to the, the right way to do it. And that's what I want to do. The Lord gave us the truth. And it's not just that he gave us the right way to do it. He gave us a better way to do it. And we're going to look under three broad categories tonight, if you're taking notes or if you care. Number one, we're going to look at what it means, according to this, to be male and female. Number two, what is God's design for marriage, that special relationship? And number three, we're going to break down some of the world's aberrant ideas of sexuality. And I'm not going to so much look at the world's arguments, but more what does the word say and why do we believe them because of that. So 
Number one, what does it mean to be male and female? It was not good for Adam to be alone. So the Lord has all the animals pass him by. Now, do not think that the Lord was so dumb that he thought that Adam might find a nice canary and settle down somewhere. What about this one, Adam? Do you like this one? No, I don't like that one. That's, what, why is he doing this? If anybody in this story needed to be convinced that Adam needed a woman, it was Adam. So the Lord literally shows him everything else. Says, none of this works for you, does it, Adam? No, it doesn't. Okay, how about I make something new for you? Think about it, fellows. We love women. We love the ladies. But rarely do we think of ourselves as being in need of a good woman. Maybe especially when we're young. You get older, maybe you can understand. But I can picture Adam being like, Lord, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need anybody. Come on. It's, it's all right. But the Lord knew better. So the Lord sent Adam into a deep sleep. And he formed the first woman out of his side. Like I said, one of his ribs. And little note here. This does not mean that men have one less rib than women. And I have to say that because in my high school biology class, which was at a Christian school, like 80% of those freshmen believed that men had one less rib than women because of this story. That is not true, and it makes sense. Because if you chop off your finger, your children are not going to be born with nine fingers. So Adam may have had one less rib than Eve, but he's not going to then have children that have fewer ribs than he does. So wanted to clear that up just in case. But Adam wakes up. He sees Eve and he rejoices. At last, he says. And he names her. This is very significant. Just as he has named the animals, he's going to name this woman. And he calls her woman, which is in Hebrew, Isha. He was called Ish, which means man or husband. And he calls her Isha, which means his wife or his bride. So you've got two people similar to one another. They are both human, which is that Hebrew word Adam. That's where the word Adam comes from but they are different from one another in the best way. They're both Adam, but he is Ish, she is Isha. They are male and female. The Lord made them differently. Adam knew right away that bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but she's not exactly like me. So let's look at this. Let's look at the way God has made men and women. What are those characteristics that make us different from each other? I want to say at the outset, I realize this is a loaded topic. I also recognize that we could talk about this forever. We could talk about all these things tonight with way more detail. And I had to keep yanking myself back here like I was a mule or something and trying to pull myself. No, we can't go that deep. We've got to pull it back. And I also recognize that not every person is going to fit neatly within this description. I used to teach this message to high schoolers. And some of the, the kids, especially the guys who felt like they weren't as athletic or they weren't as manly, you could say, they'd be very concerned. Like, well, what about me, though? Because I don't really fit in that. It, we're talking broadly here. When I give these descriptions, these are umbrellas, right? These are umbrellas that have a lot of things underneath it. And certain people have these things in different degrees. But we do need to understand the things that are broadly true. Because God has made men and women complementary to one another. That our characteristics are different, but they work together. And sometimes that can be very frustrating, as you all have found, I'm sure. But that's also the way God has made us. So let's look at men first. How has God made men? For men and women, I'm going to give what I would see as a primary characteristic or virtue and a primary role that God has given. Like I said, real basic. We're looking at umbrellas here. 
But I would say if we're going to look at it biblically, the dominant or primary characteristic of men, you could use strength as men's primary virtue. And it ties into the primary role that God has given them, which is that of a leader. So the primary virtue of men is strength. The primary role of men is a leader. Now, do not read this superficially and say, therefore, if you are a skinny man, you are less of a man. That is not what the Bible says, okay? But listen, God has given men the job to protect, to provide, to work hard, to be able to make tough decisions, to maintain God's standards of righteousness in his family. So all of that, there's some of those things are physical, some of them are psychological or spiritual. All of that requires strength, whether strength of body or strength of character. Because God has called men to lead, he made them strong. And as I said, that's an umbrella. There's a lot of other things that make that up. Now, when you understand that, it's easy to see why a strong leader left only to himself and surrounded only with other people like himself, why that could become a less than ideal situation. You put a bunch of men together and told them to do a job, they would do it. Tell them to build a house and they would build it. But imagine if there was no woman that they were building that house for. It would be sturdy. It would be perfectly measured. It would be able to withstand the storms and the wild animals, and it would have a big TV in it with the SEC network on at all times, right? <laughs> Other than that, though, what else do you need the house for? We're just going to wake up the next morning and leave it, so what do we need to make it nice for? That's why the pioneers, they went west. They just lived in the tents, because, like, who cares? We're just going to get up and get dirty again tomorrow, so what do we need a house for? But what happens? The ladies start showing up. All of a sudden, the tents and the teepees and the cabins start getting much nicer, don't they? All of a sudden, they've got glass windows. All of a sudden, there's matching hand towels. <laughs> it was a better world because that's the way that God had made women. And the men were doing it their way when it was just the cowboys. Well, it was down and dirty. It's the way it is. That's all we need. Now, all of a sudden, Mrs. Cowboy has shown up. Well, we, we can do better than that, can't we, fellas? And now let's look at how God has made women. I realize we're going quickly. Because as a man myself, it's hard for me to concisely describe what defines a woman. Let's look at this biblically. I'd say a woman's dominant virtue biblically, again, this is an umbrella, you could say kindness. It's tied to that primary role that God has given to a woman, which we see here, which is the role of a helper or a support. Look at verses 18 and 20. The Lord is looking for a helper fit for Adam. And Eve was to be that helper. God created women to be companions, to be confidants, that they would be able to motivate the men around them to do all that they were called to do. Isn't it hilarious watching like 10, 11, 12-year-old boys? They're acting like little boys, and then a little girl walks up. And now all of a sudden, they're acting like young men, or at least they're trying to. And that's what God has called them to do. They're the ones that are to take care of the little crying babies, they're the ones that are to console grown men who cannot let their guard down anywhere else. So the Lord made them kind in a very broad sense, compassionate and loyal and tender-hearted and sweet. And you can also see how that virtue unbridled, sweetness unbridled, can lead to problems. Just as we talked about the fellas, left to themselves can have problems. Mothers will overindulge their children or overprotect their children. Sometimes there are men or husbands or sons who would like to take a risk, but they've got a, somebody who loves them at home and she doesn't want them to get hurt, so she holds them back too much. It could lead to jealousy or possessiveness, but you know what? The Lord knew that, so 
the Lord created Adam for Eve. Do you see the picture I'm painting here? Men without women and women without men, those are two dangerous scenarios. <laughs> and God knew it. So the Lord brought us together. And don't think just in terms of marriage yet. The Lord brought us together in the world as a whole. Men and women, as general categories, serve to do two things. Number one, they mitigate the other's excesses. Men have certain excesses that you bring women into their lives, and all of a sudden those things are mitigated. Same thing, women have certain excesses. You bring men in, and men mitigate those things. But they also motivate the better things of the other. Men will be motivated to do better when there are women around and vice versa, you understand. To mitigate and to motivate. This is why the Lord has us both together. And we're going to see next time that the fall and the curse are going to make this relationship combative rather than as complementary as the Lord wanted it to be. Now it's a fight rather than a cooperation. But we're not there yet. It's enough for us to know that God has quite literally made men and women, ish and isha, for one another. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 through 12. I'm having to condense from a really great long passage, but let me just read the, read the money part here. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In that passage, Paul is reaffirming what we would call gender roles today. The leadership of men and the submission of women. But the thing is, we read those passages and we immediately get defensive. You know, and we kind of like stake our flag down on the top of the hill and we're ready to go. But Paul comes in and says, look, trying to play power games with one another is missing the point. God made Adam first, and that matters, but it was not good for Adam to be alone. So Paul comes in and says, you guys, trying to go at each other is no good. Women are not independent of men. Men are not independent of women. And the men will go, well, men were made first. And Paul goes, yeah, but you came from your mama. So what, what do you say here? He says that all, we're all under the leadership of God. But the whole point that I want you to see there is how related men and women are. Not just wives and husbands, but men and women in general. And you know as well as I do, this way of looking at things, the Genesis way, the biblical way, has fallen out of favor in recent years, if it ever really was in favor. The idea that it's not good for man to be alone, or it's not good for women to be alone, that's not a popular thing. And depending on which point in history you care to look at, it swings back and forth used to be more prominent for men to dismiss the women as a nuisance, right? They're just along for the ride, and, you know, I'll be home when I'm home. But now you can see the tide has shifted, and the trend, at least publicly, is to say, well, men just get in the way, they need to let the women take over, and such a person who believes that would be very offended by this passage here in Genesis, that the Lord created Eve as a helper for Adam. And in fact, you can even see this inversion played out today. If you want to describe... Let's just, you know, I don't want to say like America or whatever because it's so broad. Let's just look at like Hollywood for a second. What does Hollywood's good man look like? Well, he's sweet and he's kind and he's submissive and he's quiet and he's very supportive and gentle. And what's a good woman according to Hollywood? She's a strong, independent woman, doesn't take anything from anybody. She's got her own career. She's got her own thing, and nobody can tell her what. Do you see how we've totally flipped that? Forget what the Bible says. Like, that's barely real life, right? 
It makes me laugh sometimes because I see some of these people talking about what men should be. It's like, have you ever met a man in your life? Or have you ever met a woman in your life? Because no matter how hard you try to force it down, it's going to pop back up. It's really funny. There have been places where they try to, if you've seen these, they do the studies where they try to let the kids pick which toys they want to play with and they get very upset because the girls always pick the dolls and the guys always pick the trucks. They're like, there must have been pressure in the womb for them to conform or something like that. But, you know, even that, though, as, as Paul was saying, it's not correct. To try and pit men and women against each other as if we're on different teams, that's not good. We are not supposed to be alone, the Lord said. It was not good that Adam was alone. In the family, a child needs a daddy to push and a mommy to pull. This is how Kat and I talk about it all the time. So I'm always pushing the kids. Yeah, jump off of that thing. Be brave. Go for it. And she's always there pulling them back. No, 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 no. That's too tall. They don't need to jump from that high. And sometimes I'm right. And sometimes she's right. And sometimes I'm not right yet. And sometimes she's right now, but later on, there'll be time for that. You need that. You need both of those things, the push and the pull. You can even broaden it out. The church needs that push and that pull. The world, society, government, whatever, it needs a push and a pull. And this is why we have both. In the church, if you had only men, only men, period, in the pew, that'd be a very harsh place, wouldn't it? Man, that would be rough. If you, if you never had... Every church has a few of these. You didn't have those sweet old saints, those sweet old ladies to come in and say, I don't think we need to be that harsh about it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. If you never had any of that, that'd be a rough place. But if it was inverted, then you could, you could have overindulgence. You could have too much sweetness, I guess you could say. If you had a society of just men, well, that's called war all the time. And if it was just women, I don't know, tea parties all the time, I guess. Now, see, the ladies hear that and they say, well, tea parties are better than war. And the guys go, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> See, this is why we need both. The Lord knew that Adam was going to have certain tendencies. So he gave him Eve to foster the best in him and to soften the worst in him. And the same was true for Eve, and it's true for all of us as well. Now I want to make a, a little point here. This is important, I think, because these, this is very broad. We get this. We can laugh and joke because we all understand it. This is where I think this needs to be taught. True biblical manhood and womanhood. It is necessarily tied to culture. What do I mean by that? People on the inside are the same everywhere, right? We're all made in the image of God, but we live in different places. We live in different societies. And one culture way on this part of the earth is going to express the image of God of male or female culturally. Here, men wear suits, women wear dresses. That is cultural. That's America. In Jesus' day, both the men and the women wore what basically amount to dresses, right? They were robes. You call them robes, but you get it. But there were other cultural distinctions. The women would cover their hair. The men would always wear their beards long, you understand. But they're both expressing the same thing, just expressing it differently. Are you with me? So if we can leave aside sinful things, see, every time I bring this up, somebody wants to bring up some terrible thing. Leave aside the sinful stuff. We ought to encourage men and women in the church to conform to the accepted cultural understanding of how a man or woman is to act or dress or speak. The Lord is not honored, as Paul makes very clear in a couple places, by androgyny, which comes from the word for man and the word for woman in Greek, and you bring them together, and it means where the lines are blurred, and you cannot tell the two apart. You know, if we were living in Jesus' day, for example, wearing a suit might be kind of strange, and you'd be wearing a robe, and you wouldn't be feminine for wearing a robe, because everybody's wearing them. 
But you come to this culture, and if a gentleman is going to be walking around in what amounts to a dress, well, they're back in Jesus' day. You're not living in Jesus' day. You're living here among these people. We need to make sure that we're encouraging that. We don't believe that a man can become a woman or vice versa. In fact, the Bible says it's shameful for a woman to dress or act like a man, and it's shameful for a man to try to live like a woman. And there are many who are very deceived on this issue. But here's the thing. We want to try and correct that in love, and we should. We, I, we talked, I believe it was last week, about how kind we need to be on this issue. But where we begin to correct this is at the earliest of ages, we need to insist that boys and girls act like boys or girls. I'm convinced that this is where the battle is being lost. We did a, a three-week study on this with our college group back in Virginia, and Everybody was with me all through this. Yes, they're with me on the theology. They're with me on the scripture. But the minute I started applying it, that's when I started getting pushback. Well, I mean, you can't say that just because somebody talks like that, that they're not being masculine. Just somebody dresses like that. I mean, the Bible, it's not really about that, is it? It's always about the heart. And I realized that's where the disconnect was. Because technically that might be true. But if you are not going to enforce it at the level, I say enforce like I'm this big, you know, oppressive thing, but if you're not going to insist upon it at that ground level, you're going to miss it later. You know, my dad growing up, there would be times where I would, my dad would say things like, Tyler, don't walk like that. Tyler, don't talk like that. Come on, what are you doing? Don't wear that. No, go wear something. You're not going to do that. And those little nudges in the right direction with my dad saying what? The Lord made you a man. You're going to live like a man. And this is what men do. And if we are unwilling to do that, if we're hesitant on that, then what are we really communicating? Yes, you're a man. Yes, you're a woman. But it doesn't really matter what you do. No, that's not what the word teaches us. And I, I, I pray that you'll pray through that and think about that because that's really what makes a difference. It is good to be a man. It's good to be a woman. And men in this day and age dress and act and look like this. Women in this day and age, same thing. Leaving aside the sinful stuff. And that's what we ought to be teaching to our children and to be encouraging among each other too. God requires of his people to live out how he's made us. We ought to have the most masculine men and the most feminine women in God's church. Because we accept that those are both good things. That we ought to live them out. And because when men and women come together, they constitute the image of God. Every individual fully possesses the image of God. Some folks want to make it like this weird binary thing, like a man can't have the image of God on his own. Yes, he can. All right? But we need each other in order to, listen, fully express the image of God. Adam fully had the image of God, but who is he going to defend and provide for and protect if there's no woman there for him to do that? Who is woman going to nurture as God nurtures us without man? This is why the Lord brought the two separate sexes together so that he could fully reveal himself through the humanity as a whole. And this is most clearly seen in the realm of marriage. This is going to be our second thing we look at here. Because not only did God create a man and a woman, but he brought them together in a special relationship to reveal that image of God in a spectacular way. And it doesn't use the word here, but that's what it is. This is the first marriage. God himself presided over the very first wedding ceremony when he brought Adam and Eve together. This is how he was going to populate his world. This is how he was going to bring about emotional maturity among his people. And as I've said already, verse 24 is the prescription for marriage throughout the whole Bible. 
This is the way God made us to be together. And I'm going to say briefly, because it is important, marriage is not essential in order to be a good Christian. It is not essential to fully living an abundant life. And it is certainly not essential in order to be saved. John the Baptist, Paul, and Jesus Christ himself were not married. So if you're single, you're in good company. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, in the Bible, talks about the benefits of being single. Namely, the freedom to live your life for Christ without hindrance. Paul's like, I'm single, and I don't think I'd be able to do all this ministry if I had a wife waiting for me. So... Keep that in mind as we talk about these things. We're going to talk about marriage because this is the passage, but I remember when I was single and I was growing up, I used to think to myself, well, when, when I'm finally married, then that's when my life can begin. That's not how the Lord looks at these things, okay? So read through 1 Corinthians 7 if you have any questions about that. But that said, it's important for us to give the appropriate honor to marriage. Marriage is God's idea. This was his design. This was day six of the world. There was marriage. The first day there was people, there was marriage was not invented as a contract in order to preserve your finances or a way to enslave a woman to her husband. I've heard people say that one too. It was instituted in the Garden of Eden and declared to be very good by the Creator God. People in every culture, at every time in history, have been married. You go into the depths of the jungle, and they're married. You go into the deserts and the wilderness, they're married. You go up into the ices in the north, they're married. Because it goes back to the very beginning. It's universal. This is how God intended. And in fact, the Lord made clear in verse 24, marriage is to be the primary relationship of a married person's life. He says that a man, and of course by extension the woman as well, is to leave his parents and hold fast or cleave to his wife. We use that phrase in our marriage vows, forsaking all others, keeping myself only unto her or him, right? According to this verse, once a man is married, his mother is no longer the number one woman in his life. Some folks need to hear that. And he's no longer under the direct authority of his father. And a woman may not be held on to by her parents as if she were property to be bought and sold. Well, it's my daughter. It's my wife. How dare you? Well, it's right here in the scriptures, what it says. This is the language of separation. That word for leave is azav, and it's translated elsewhere to abandon or forsake. For this reason, a man shall abandon his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There are many parents who want to retain unwarranted influence in their children's lives after they're married. That is not biblical. I think our culture, all things considered, does pretty well on this topic. You go around the world, there are some other places where, no, 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 you listen to your daddy until the day your daddy dies. And that's not biblical. The Lord makes it clear right here. We're even going to see that the patriarchal system that they get into in the book of Genesis, in some cases, you could say oversteps the bounds that the Lord made clear here in the book of Genesis. The Lord wants every boy and every girl to have the opportunity to become their own man and their own woman without the overbearing presence of your parents. And if I can make a personal note here, after being a youth pastor for a long time, I feel that in some ways we've gotten off track with this in the church specifically. Part of the responsibility of a parent is to raise a child that is ready to leave and marry with enough maturity to handle themselves. But I've seen, in many cases, parents infantilize their children 
in the name of protecting them from the world. And I don't like that because protecting them from the world is a good thing, but you do something horrible to your children and cloak it in nice sounding words. And now you've raised a child who is 25 or 30 years old and is not even mature enough to leave the house and pay their own bills. Well, they're just not ready. Well, why aren't they ready? You're the one that was supposed to get them ready. There's an expectation as time goes on that children should wait longer and longer to begin their married lives. I'm not sure it's a good thing. This has been the case sometimes in history where people have even waited longer than now on average. But I'm sure a lot of this is not intentional. But I think sometimes parents, we keep our kids dependent on us way longer than we should have. And this is, you know, it's a wake-up call for me as a parent. I have three kids, and we ought to be raising kids that are as capable of leaving as soon as possible. doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to leave right away, but we need to make them ready to leave. That's our job. Looking at this verse right here, knowing that this is what is going to face them later, we need to make them ready for that. Prophet Malachi said concerning marriage, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Check this out. Did the Lord not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The Lord sanctifies every marriage by his Holy Spirit. And it says he's seeking godly offspring. Is this a mandate that you must have children or you can't go to heaven? No, but it was certainly expected in those days and it still is today. The Lord wants his world filled up with godly men and women. That's how we push back the darkness. We raise up godly people to go out and live lives as the Lord intended. So we do that by investing in our families. Now, this is something that maybe I'll go over a little quickly for time's sake, but in other cultures and in other times, I'd say in most other ones, marriages were much more transactional than they are today. You know, we've sort of taken the uh, act of getting married and made it like the pinnacle moment of our lives, haven't we? Like, everything is building up to that, and after that, well, what's the point anymore? The movie always fades out once that happens. There's nothing left, there's nothing else to say, right? Other cultures, though, I mean, marriage was much more practical, you could say. You know, if there's a political alliance that needed to be forged, or a business deal that wanted to be made, or if you're trying to make peace between different families. Especially in the Bible, marriages were sort of like blind dates for life. (laughs) They were arranged. You showed up, and there she was. Have a nice life. And you know what? Believe it or not, the Lord does not give very much instruction about how to do that. The Lord is pretty wide open. What he does tell us is how we are to act once we are married. I think that's very interesting. Because we tend to use the circumstances of our marriages in order to explain why I don't have to treat her right or why I don't have to stay with him. In the Bible... They would shake a hand, and Dad would come home one day and say, Son, I picked a wife for you. What's her name? I don't remember, but it's, it's fine. <laughs> You'll fall in love, I'm sure. So, like, if, if in that case the Lord is telling people to love and obey and submit to one another, then, like, we get to pick. <laughs> we get to pick. So we ought to keep that in mind as we move forward. But as I said, the Lord makes most of his instruction for when you're in marriage. And most of that is in Ephesians 5 how husbands and wives are to treat one another. 
I'll just use the summary verse. This is Ephesians 5.33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands are told to love their wives. Women to respect their husbands there. The Lord was way ahead of his time. Because now you've got all these psychological studies that think they're so clever, discovering it turns out that most men would prefer to be respected and most women would prefer to be loved. The Lord knew what he was talking about. Go figure. <laughs> men need the respect of their wives. They need that loyal support. A man needs to be taken seriously, doesn't he? Ladies, a man can handle any amount of disrespect and failure and difficulty out there if he knows that back home his wife is right there with him. He can saddle up and go out and do it again the next day. If he knows that you have his back no matter what, he can fly, ladies. This is why the women are told in that passage, distinct from what he told the husbands, respect your husbands. And they're told to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. The Lord created Adam first. He created Eve as his helper. He put order in the family by placing the husband as the head of his wife. If there was ever a cultural blind spot, that's ours right there. Ladies, I feel for you, the pressure that you undergo. But look to what the Word of God says. Submit to your husbands, respect them, and be loyal to them. If you can do that, he'll go out and conquer the world for you. If a man has a good woman who respects him and supports him and follows his lead, do you think he's going to trample all over you? No, he wants to help you and serve you and love you. And that's what we're told to do. But gentlemen, women need to be loved. You may not need all that romantic, mushy stuff, but they do. You must show them how much you care about them and be tender and patient with them at all times. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. How much? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross is the love that we are to demonstrate to our wives. It's not just about providing for them or protecting them or fixing all their problems. They want to know that you love them no matter what, that you're not going anywhere, that you take special delight in them as a person. Fellas, don't get angry at your wife because she's more emotional than you are. You married a woman. If you wanted a fishing buddy, who would watch the game with you and think through things with cold, hard logic with you, you signed up for the wrong gig, my friend. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, fellas, if you love your wives like Jesus loves them, it'll be a delight and a joy for them to submit to you and follow you anywhere. And I've talked about that marriage merry-go-round. Well, I'll start loving her when she submits to me. Well, I'll submit to him when he starts loving me. Someone's got to get off first and start loving, respecting the other one. And there's another aspect of married life that Genesis alludes to here. It says that the two shall become one flesh. This is a reference to the sexual consummation of the married relationship. It is very rare to find a marriage that is not working where this side of things is not also out of balance. The world is, is going through all kinds of nonsense right now because they're trying to figure out how they can have a licentious sexual culture and still be happy and have productive relationships with one another. But the good Lord intended sex only to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship. It solves so many problems when we do it that way. All these weird questions that the world has to answer, we don't have to answer those questions. You ever watch 
I don't know, some weird reality show or some TV thing, and they're trying to figure stuff out, and I'll turn to my wife and say, I'm so glad that we don't have to deal with that. The Lord knew what he was doing. And the Bible does not just instruct married couples about their physical relationship. It celebrates it. The book of Song of Solomon is one long eulogy to the romantic and sexual life of the married couple. Read that without blushing, I dare you. That should tell us something, doesn't it? Now, we want to observe biblical modesty. We want to have common sense. But we we should not be negative about the gift that God has given to men and women. But because we're so different, we experience trouble in this relationship as well. And it can spill over into other parts of your life. Men tend to be much more physical when it comes to sex. And women, much more emotional. That's good. That's how God has made us. That's the image of God. But if we grow out of balance in that, then there will be trouble. If that relationship of a married couple is all focused on the physical side of things, then one partner, usually the woman, but not always, will begin to feel used and feel cheapened. You focus too much on the emotional side of things, and one partner, usually the man, will begin to feel less like a lover and more like a buddy or a best friend. We are male and female, and in the consummation of marriage, the two become one. We have to be able to handle this as Christians. Let me describe a scenario for you that we've seen in counseling many times. A couple grows older, and I'm just going to give the typical version of it, okay? couple grows older. The wife loses interest in the sexual relationship, maybe because her husband has not been as emotionally in tune with her as he used to be. Husband starts to feel angry or betrayed, but too afraid to say anything about it because it's awkward or uncomfortable. Time goes on. That aspect of the marriage begins to atrophy. And so their relationship suffers in other ways too. He's moody. She's distant. It's just not working anymore. One day, she finds someone who does connect with her on an emotional level that she missed. Or he finds somebody who makes him feel young and virile again. Perhaps he turns to pornography, or she does. They drift apart. They get angrier over time until they blow up and the marriage collapses and it seems like it collapsed in one moment. What happened? It just came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. Who's to blame in that story? A lot of times we want to blame the one who left first, when in reality both parties were acting poorly. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 7. This is very important that we all need to understand as married men and women. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. Listen to this now. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, And each woman, her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you know that was in the Bible? Brothers and sisters, we could put to rest a great deal of sin and temptation in the church if we would obey those words. In case you didn't catch it because of the language, let me say it very plainly. According to the Bible... Husbands and wives are not permitted to deny one another their sexual rights in marriage. And the reason for that 
according to Paul, is because if a man or a woman is frustrated sexually, they will be tempted to look elsewhere. And while that would never excuse adultery or pornography or whatever, to withhold yourself from your spouse is sin, my friends. Right there in your Bible. And let me put in a word for the men here because this is such a common problem and it's usually angled this way. Ladies, for you, sex is very much about emotional intimacy. And if you feel satisfied emotionally, you might feel that it's unnecessary. Your husband does not feel that way. For men, it is very much a physical, overpowering drive. But there is incredible pressure on every man in this room not to bring it up to you. Because we are hit night and day with the fact that we need to be kinder and sweeter and more understanding. And it's a temptation. But God himself included instructions in his Bible in order to spare both of you the pain and the frustration that accompanies this issue. Do not let romance or passion or however you're feeling that day keep you from one another. And if you are unable as a married couple to have this conversation with one another, we've got to correct that first. The Lord knew. He knew how tough this was. And Paul is very, very plainly and almost uncomfortably saying, you guys need to take care of each other so that neither one of you is tempted to look anywhere else. But we don't think of it that way. We think, that's so, that's so clinical though, Paul. That's not very romantic, is it? Well, I'll just say our ideas of romance and so-called love, they're so far removed from what the Bible actually says. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves in a lot of ways. We're like children because we all loved being teenagers. Maybe that's because of the way that we do marriage because it's basically up to the kids. And so like when everything is going crazy, it's like the only thing that you think about and your whole life is about that. And it's fun, it's exciting, it's up and it's down and it's, it's whatever. Then now you're married and then it's gone and you miss it. And we think, well, now what? I, I could go on a rabbit trail here, but all the folks that are making all of our romantic movies and all of our romantic songs, everything, they all have terrible marriages that are falling apart. They don't know anything about what happens after that. So we listen to them? I don't think so. Your love as a man or a woman should be grounded in the vows you have made to each other and in the worship of Jesus Christ. That's a foundation that's deeper than all the sweet nothings you whisper in each other's ears. As Christians, we need to have a grown-up, mature view of gender, marriage, and, yeah, sex too. Because it's real and it's how God has made us. And the Lord took the time to put it in his Bible. We need to know this. Because if we don't, then we're tempted to go the wrong way. And this is the third thing we're going to look at here. And I do want to go through this quickly because it's not very much fun. And I'd rather focus on the positive aspects of it today. But the Lord instituted the marriage relationship and the sexual relationship as well. Sex is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But as you know, next chapter, sin will enter into the world. And sin is a corrupter. It takes what is good and it turns it evil. And the better something was at the beginning, the worse it becomes once it is corrupted. And because in the consummation of marriage, we find some of the greatest joys and intimacies and expressions of God's character, it's in the distortion of sexual immorality that we find some of the worst deprivations of man. Because it's so good to start out, it's so bad when it goes bad. 
And I don't even really care to call out our own culture on this. We're permissive concerning sexuality. But yeah, I mean, every culture has been that. But all of them are corrected by referring to the same original design of God here. And it's not pleasant talking about these things, but we need to know why we say certain things are right and wrong. Because it's right here. God's way is not only the right way, but it's a better way. So I I believe I have nine things that I want to run through here, nine aberrations that we ought to avoid based on this passage. So if you're taking notes, great. If not, then let's just hear these and, and we'll come to a close here pretty quickly. First of all, you can see from this passage, God did not find a suitable companion for Adam among the beasts. This may seem obvious to us, but God created man to reproduce with woman and not with any of the beasts. The Bible makes that very clear, and I think we get that one, so that's probably for the best. Number two, you can see the beauty of the picture where Adam and Eve come together, and Adam says, at last, right? There's mutual love, mutual consent. The Lord does not permit sex to be a matter of force or coercion. So even within the marriage bed, rape is always wrong. It's another thing I think we get, but it's important to say. Number three, this is a little more controversial. The Lord created sex to be between a man and a woman. This is not only taught in the Old Testament, but it's affirmed in the New as well. And folks who want to say, well, the Bible only talks about homosexuality in the book of Leviticus. That's not correct. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, for example, it says that men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's in the midst of a big, long list, and it's right there. And it's actually two words. And the two Greek words that it uses to translate as men who practice homosexuality, these are very explicit words in Greek to describe both partners in a homosexual act. There's no question about this in Scripture. God created men, as I just described, to complement one another. And to subvert that is sinful. It's Satan's way of undermining the beautiful design that God's given us. And not only that, but the Bible tells us it's a physical abomination as well. God quite literally created men and women for one another. And to approve otherwise is unacceptable to the Lord. The Bible says it goes against nature. And that's very obvious, although we're not allowed to say it anymore out loud. But we can't compromise on this. This applies also, as I've mentioned before, but we hit it again a few weeks ago, those who want to try to change their gender. That's an act of defiance against God. God, the way you made me is no good. And the Bible says that who are you to tell God, why have you made me this way? We need to be full of love on this issue. We really do. But we cannot pretend that we don't know the truth either. And we cannot say, well, I don't see what the big deal is because the big deal is that this is what God designed from the very beginning and to try and upend that is not a good thing. Fourth, God will make clear later that marriage is not to be between close relatives. Incestuous relationships are prohibited biblically. Now, as you all know, when Adam and Eve's children were born, they would have been reproducing with one another at first. But when the population of earth had grown sufficiently, the Lord put a stop to that. And I will say that it is amazing how many young children have been abused in their own homes. That does not happen here, and it should not happen anywhere. But the Lord makes it clear that it's not between family members. Number five, the Lord made one man and one woman. (laughs) He did not create Adam a harem. He gave him one wife. Adam, this is your wife. 
Can I have another one? No, you may not. Now, later on in the Bible, Paul will restrict the pastorate to men who only have one wife. And it's really kind of funny to me, and I, I don't want to make too light of it, but we read that passage and it says, a husband of one wife. And in our culture today, which is monogamous, and we don't really question it, we say, now what does that mean? That must be a deeper meaning. There. No, not really. You go around the world and you've got fellows that have five or six wives. Paul says, that guy probably shouldn't be a pastor. Why? Because he's trying to put the ideal of God on display. Now, this is interesting, and we will discuss this at another time, but in the Old Testament, there are several times where the Lord makes allowance for polygamy and even blesses it at certain times. There's what was called leveret marriage, where if a man's brother died and he had a wife, he was to take that woman into his house as his wife and have a child with her. Does he now have two wives? Yes, he does. So what's going on here? I think this is a very interesting topic, but I think this is what you call the Lord making accommodation to a sinful world, similar to how he did with divorce, as Jesus would explain. The kings of Israel were not permitted to multiply wives. They didn't listen, but they weren't supposed to. And it remains clear that although there were times where the Lord permitted this for certain reasons, a single spouse was his idea. And I mean, good luck finding an example in the Bible of where multiple wives worked out for somebody. It never did. The story of Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah, not only were they, were they both his wives, they were sisters. And you see how they compete and they fought and it went very poorly. The Lord knew that. So the only times it was really permitted, most often it was in the case where there was a woman whose husband died, she had no other recourse. For example, when David married Abigail because her husband had died, you remember that story? The point there is the Lord is, I, I want these people to be looked out for, looked after. And it seems that the Lord in some cases would prefer having multiple wives to someone being abandoned or to just cohabitating. But Eden is the standard for us. One man, one woman. We're lucky to live in a time where we don't really have to address this anymore. But anyway, number six. As I've said already, the only place where sex is permitted in Scripture is within the bounds of marriage. Here's a word we don't use much anymore. To have sex before marriage is called fornication. And people don't like that word because it, it makes people feel bad. Okay, well, that is what the word means, and it's only ever called a sin in the Bible. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There are a lot of folks, even in the church, that have really caved on this issue. Sex before marriage is a sin, especially for a Christian. And you know what the Lord says? And this is maybe where I'm going to come to the, the, the side of people who have dealt with this before. The Lord says, if you're so burned up with passion that you can't control yourself, just get married. Well, that doesn't seem like a good reason to get married. It's a biblical reason to get married. Fornication has led to more emotional pain and confusion than perhaps anything else. We need to stop viewing sex as a physical or emotional release only. It is a sacred, unifying act between a husband and a wife. And perhaps, and I will say this, maybe we ought to start encouraging people to get married younger. Because I feel like sometimes what we do is we ask folks to go through the most turbulent, emotional, hormonal times of their lives, wait until you're 30, and then get married. And Paul comes out and says, guys, if you can't keep it together, just get married. Again, very practical way the Bible looks at it, isn't it? So, again, it's wrong, but 
again, I think that there are things we can do to maybe make it easier. Number seven, that's adultery. Having sex with another person while married, that should be repellent to us. And I think it is for most people, just in general. Again, it happens, but nobody comes out and says it's a good thing, despite what TV wants to tell you sometimes. Keep yourselves for one another. Don't let your eyes, don't let your heart wander. That pain can be healed, but it will leave a scar. Solomon would tell his son, drink from your own cistern. Drink from your own well. You've got a well, stick to your well. Don't go looking out for anybody else. Number eight, marriage is to be forever. The passage from Malachi 2 that I read earlier said that the Lord hates divorce. God never intended men and women who marry to break up and go their separate ways. Now, this is similar to what we just talked about polygamy. The Lord makes provision for divorce in certain cases, but Jesus makes it very clear that it is a spiritual tragedy when that happens. Folks today sometimes treat divorce like a back door to get out of a tough relationship. Well, if it ever gets too hard, I can always leave. That's not how God sees it. Jesus never gives up on you, so we do not give up on each other. Number nine, in case anybody hasn't been bothered yet, Number nine, Jesus makes very clear that lust itself is the problem. Not any of these specific acts so much. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus said, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The precursor to sin is always in the heart. We are not to look with lust on another person who is not our spouse. Solomon said, Proverbs 5, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Translation, be crazy about your wife. Don't go elsewhere. Be crazy about the one who married you when you were young and crazy and now you're together. That should be enough, he says. The Lord has made accommodation for sexual desire within the bounds of marriage. And that's the only place, which pretty much rules out any excuse for pornography, by the way. And I've heard them all. Well, I'm not married, so it's not going to give me a break, all right? You're looking with lust. And that's not for the believer. Love and commitment to your own wife, your own husband. That's the rule. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's really funny. The Bible uses the word passion negatively just about every time. This is the passionate moment. I was swept away in passion. The Bible says don't live like that. Get a hold of yourself, basically, right? And it says in verse 25 that Adam and Eve were naked and without shame because they had invited no other sexual immorality into their lives. They had nothing to be ashamed of. Do you want to have a dynamic marriage? Keep yourself only unto your spouse as the Lord has intended. Do whatever it takes. Jesus said, if you can't get a hold of your eyes, poke them out. More people have had their lives ruined by this sort of thing than by just about anything else. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. My eyes and I have a deal. We don't look on any young lady. And I think that we're so over-sexualized these days. And I say over like I'm comparing it to anything. I've only ever grown up with things like this. It's hard. It's difficult. Come back to the Lord's standard. That's the good thing. 
The Lord gives us redemption on this stuff. Well, you messed up and that's it. That's not how God sees things. And it's amazing how, how many of those things that I just listed, those nine things, I have heard every one of them at one time or another referred to as an unforgivable sin. Nonsense. The only unforgivable sin is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejecting Jesus Christ. Paul used to drag mothers and fathers apart from each other and drag them off to be killed. I think that's a little more unforgivable, don't you think? The Lord has saved terrorists. The Lord has saved polygamists. The Lord has saved anybody you can think of. But he has also called us to enjoy the fruits of creation without shame, without guilt, and without anybody or anything holding any power over you because of your own indiscretion. Isn't that a tragic thing when you see that? These great men or great women that have been brought down because they couldn't control themselves sexually, and now they've just fallen, and we look at them like, how pathetic. The Lord knew. And this is God's way of doing it. One man, one woman for life. God has given us all things richly to enjoy, but you can't let yourself be led astray into these weird, strange, foreign, unbiblical ideas about marriage or sexuality. Because not only is this how we live out the image of God, but we give a testimony to Christ and his church, right? The Bible says that the husband loving his wife is like Christ loving the church, and the wife submitting to her husband is like the church submitting to Christ. A living, breathing parable for the world. Isn't that cool? So we get to be a part of that? There's nothing more joyful and more liberating than to live out that picture in your own life. And as I said, you do not need to be married to live that out. And we come to an end here. Perhaps there are some of us who hear this and need to repent and return to what God has told us to do. But that's the good news, right? That God is there. He's ready to hear your confession and welcome you back into the fold. Maybe there's a man or woman that you need to apologize to. And you come back to the Lord together and say, we're going to do it the Lord's way. Our way doesn't work. Have you noticed that? I can figure it out. I can manage it. I can handle it. No, you can't. Do it the Lord's way. Because God's design is not just the right way, but it's better, isn't it? Oh, it's so oppressive and it's so restrictive. Yeah, but I don't deal with any of this big, long list of problems that you folks are dealing with right now. If we were to live as the Lord commanded us to live in marriage, there would be no shame. There'd be no fear. There'd be no resentment within marriage. When he loves her and she submits to him and the marriage bed is undefiled, that that, that's abundant life, isn't it? What else do you need when you have that working for you? But I know all of us, every single one of us have made mistakes along the way, haven't we? You think to yourself, I had the best intentions. I was 17 years old and I swore I'm, this is what it's going to be like. And now here I am and so much for that. Well, the Lord doesn't look at it and say, well, I guess we can put you in second class if you want to try to still make the train. But I mean... No, they're not putting you up front anymore. That's not how the Lord looks at us, does he? The Lord redeems people. The Lord redeemed prostitutes. They would come weeping to Jesus because one person in their entire life told them, you can make a change and God will forgive you for it. Because the enemy looks down on us and he despises us. You're so weak. You're so nothing. You're, so, you're just the dust of the ground. I watched God make you out of the dirt. That's all you are is dirt. The Lord says, no, that's not how I see you. The Lord brings redemption to our lives. So that's my, my challenge for us today. 
Live up to the standard that God has given us. And if you've blown it, come back and start again. Am I allowed to do that? Absolutely. Jesus died for you. I deserve to die for what I've done. Yeah, but guess what? Jesus died for you. And now we have grace. Grace to keep walking. Grace to fail and get up and keep going. You're not going to find that anywhere else. People would say things like, you've got to forgive yourself. You can forgive yourself all you want, but you know that you're not forgiven. But when you come to Jesus, you know that you are forgiven. Learn to walk in what Christ has done for you. Make a new start tomorrow. And the Lord is right there with you, ready to support you and help you along the way.